from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. A trial that could decide the ownership of the fabulous Fox Theater. Attorney General Eric Schmidt's deposition of Anthony Fauci in a lawsuit alleging social media censorship. The city of St. Louis's hardball tactics against a peaceful protester. Yes, today is our legal roundtable, that once-a-month occasion where we dig into the most interesting and important legal disputes in the St. Louis region. We have a lot of great stuff to close out the year. Maybe too much great stuff. He had a and uh, joining uh, me now in studio to talk about as much as we can fit in. And he asked for it to be on his grave. He's a former prosecutor mm-hmm. he was looking and a former for a justice on the Missouri Court of Appeals, the Eastern District. Uh, and he's he currently a partner at the Thompson Coburn Law Firm. They didn't even try for the death penalty. Good afternoon, Sarah. And we're also joined today by Sarah Swadish. She is an attorney specializing in labor and employment law, and she's now in private practice at the law office of Sarah Swadish. Sarah, welcome. Thank you. And last but never least, we are joined today by Dave Rowland. He's the litigation director at the Freedom Center of Missouri. Dave, welcome. Always a pleasure, Sarah. So I highlighted a lot of juicy disputes a minute ago, but before we get to them, I think we'd be remiss not to talk about a groundbreaking case that went before St. Louis Circuit Court Judge David Mason last week, and this is the long-standing innocence claim of Lamar Johnson. For years, St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner sought to free Johnson, who'd been convicted of murder in St. Louis in 1994. The state Supreme Court said Kim Gardner didn't have the ability to take action in his case. Well, the Missouri legislature changed the law to allow prosecutors to do just that. And so Gardner tried again. Dave, what do you make of the fact uh, that this case has now had its day in St. Louis Circuit Court? We're waiting to hear what Judge Mason is going to decide. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm thrilled that we have folks who are having their opportunity to have their their claims heard like this. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a, a tremendous miscarriage of justice in our country that so many people um, find themselves convicted of crimes that even prosecutors later admit that they did not commit. And, and so um, the fact that this hearing has been held is a huge step in the right direction. Um, I'd love to see more hearings like this, and hopefully we'll get to those hearings in the future. But I'm, I'm optimistic um, that Mr. Johnson is going to finally have justice in this case. Judge Shaw, it was interesting to read some of the coverage of this case as it was playing out. There were a lot of fireworks. There were some people saying, hey, Lamar Johnson didn't kill this man. I killed this man. I mean, these are kind of the moments that we often see on Law & Order type TV shows don't always happen every day in court. Absolutely, Sarah. And and as David has said, I mean, based upon what we've seen and heard, um, Mr. Johnson has a very good chance of prevailing in this matter. Uh, from, from what we know, as you've pointed out, someone else has uh, claimed responsibility, and that claim is backed up by other evidence. In addition, the eyewitness has recanted the testimony and uh, also evidence has come out that the eyewitness uh, was receiving payments from the you know, uh, circuit attorney's office. So there are a number of factors at play uh, for Judge Mason to consider. Uh, he's going to uh, get briefing from the attorneys, I think is due Friday. Mm-hmm. And um, 
and probably within the next couple of weeks, we'll expect the decision. He said he's going to decide this fairly quickly. Something I also thought was interesting reading about how this has played out in court is that Judge Mason seemed like he was actively questioning um, some of these witnesses, something that, again, I'm not sure we see every day. It seems like he took a really proactive role in this hearing. Not only was he actively questioning the witnesses, though, when one of the witnesses... uh, one of the points of, of dispute was about the eyewitness testimony and, and about uh, whether or not uh, anyone could identify uh, Mr. Johnson. And the police officer says, well, um, he has a lazy eye, and I can see the lazy eye. And Judge Mason uh, seemed to disagree and had Mr. Johnson stand up and had uh, someone take a picture of him. Oh, wow. In the courtroom. So, uh, yeah, Judge Mason was very actively involved in it, and uh, he he is certainly on top of things. Yeah, this is something that I feel like we don't see every day. Um, A judge who's this involved, somebody who's stepping in, ordering a photo to be taken. Sarah, what do you make of this case? I think Judge Mason wants to get it right. He, I mean, all cases, all trials are serious, but when a man is in prison, I think Judge Mason wants to get it right. And I think Judge Mason uh, loves trial work. I, I know he's uh, he coaches trial teams, so I think he loves being in the courtroom, and I think he's just a, an animated person who gets involved. I don't think all judges are necessarily as active as him, uh, but I think he was a great, I don't know how he was assigned. I assume it was a, a random assignment, but I think he's a great poll for this case. So as we see this, this is the first one that has happened in St. Louis. It's only the second one that has happened across the state of Missouri. Dave is hopeful we'll see a number of other cases like this. We have a pretty busy criminal justice system as it is. It feels like something like this to go back and look at some of these wrongful conviction cases. This this requires a lot of attention to be paid, a lot of resources going into this. Are, are you worried that not everybody's going to get as intensive a hearing as this? Well, I think that almost leads us to Kevin Johnson. I don't know if that's where we're we're headed, but I I think that – so Kevin Johnson was executed last week for a a cop killing. A couple weeks ago. Uh, November 29th. Okay. Well, time's flying. A couple weeks ago. Um, And Kevin Johnson's case went up to the Missouri Supreme Court, went up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and really there were two – claims that were being uh, two claims arguments being made to the Missouri Supreme Court and to the US Supreme Court one was uh that the judge the circuit court didn't follow the it's statute 547 it's part of the integrity conviction unit uh back when Kevin Strickland they were trying to release Kevin Strickland Missouri legislature came in and created the statute which provided the hearing that Mr. Lamar Johnson is getting And so the prosecutor in the Kevin Johnson case filed a motion to vacate. And under the statute, there's three things that must happen. If a motion to vacate is filed, there must be a hearing. uh, There must be witnesses. There must be conclusions of law. And if the evidence is clear and convincing, the judge must release the inmate or not the inmate, but the the, 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 I I, I guess the the defendant. Um, And in this case, in Kevin Johnson's case, the prosecutor filed that motion to vacate and the circuit court did not hold a hearing, did not take any witnesses, which is what is happening in Kevin Johnson's case. And so it went up to the Missouri Supreme Court. The prosecutor said, hey, problem number one is we didn't get our hearing. Problem number two is there is a ton of evidence 
uh, of unconstitutional conviction that you didn't even hear the merits of. And so Kevin Johnson's appeal to the Missouri Supreme Court and to the U.S. Supreme Court was one, you didn't follow the process of the statute. And number two is there is substantial evidence of a of a unconstitutional conviction. So do we want to see more hearings? Yes. Or am I concerned that there will be um, that the process will be short circuited? Yes, because that's exactly what happened in the Kevin Johnson case. Yeah, I mean, this state law says there shall be a hearing. And the prosecutor filed in this case to get this hearing. There was no hearing. And they kicked this up to all these levels, took it all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. They got away with not having a hearing. Um, Judge Shaw, does this mean going forward any judge in Missouri who gets one of these wrongful conviction claims can say, yeah, I'm going to have this hearing or not have this hearing. It's not necessarily as clear cut as there shall be a hearing seems to imply. Well, it, it, it may seem clear cut. I, I would not advise any judge to disregard the words of the statute, but we have to remember that the Supreme Court ultimately determines what the law means and that the Supreme Court says it means something other than what we think it says. That's what counts. That's what it means. That's what it means. So one of the aspects of this that I think is important was the the Missouri Supreme Court, the majority, seemed frustrated that um, this issue wasn't rising up until just before the execution date had been scheduled. Mm -hmm. And so one of the big issues was – um, under what circumstances could you get a stay of execution for the purpose of holding this kind of a hearing? And the majority seemed to suggest that part of the difference was made by the fact that this was a special prosecutor that had been assigned uh, to address this, and it wasn't the actual prosecuting attorney. That and was and we should the mention case. here the reason there was a special prosecutor is uh, Wesley Bell, who is the prosecuting mm-hmm. attorney in St. Louis County. He had a conflict of interest. There was a man on his staff who had previously worked on this case as a prosecutor. Right, and, and the court determined yeah. that the entire office was. Uh, excluded from litigating the case because of that. And so if there is that conflict of interest, and then the court is saying, oh, well, we're going to treat this differently if it's a special prosecutor, it seems like there's good reason we ended up with a special prosecutor here. I I certainly agree. I certainly agree. And and to be honest, I'm a little frustrated that the the five judges on the Missouri Supreme Court were unwilling to give that time and that space for the hearing to to be held. To stay this execution. I do want to point out there was a dissent. So Judge Breckenridge and Judge Draper dissented, and they pointed out why, and their reasoning um, was significantly echoed by Justice Jackson of the Supreme Court, joined by Justice Sotomayor. Um, And they recognized, look, when we're talking about issues of life and death, um, it's really important that we get this right, and it's worth delaying executions to make sure, um, number one, that the law is being followed. And that was the big complaint from the dissent and from uh, Justice Jackson's dissent uh, is, is they said the statute sets out a procedure that involves having a hearing. It says you shall have a hearing and there was no hearing here. Mm-hmm. And and so in order to make sure that the procedure is followed, um, that's one significant basis for having uh, the delay of the execution. But number two, the fact that there is no turning back once someone has been executed. Um, so so I, I certainly agree with the, the dissents in both circumstances. But maybe what we'll find is that um, these circumstances were so unique that 
the future cases that arise under this new statute will be dealt with differently. There's certainly room for appellate courts, including the Missouri Supreme Court, to reach different results if they're presented with a different set of facts. Judge Shaw, what, what would you say to that? Well, I, I agree. The, and, and I would also add that the unique circumstances of this case include the very bad facts of this case. We're talking about in the Kevin Johnson case. Yes, yes. Uh, um, In the Kevin Johnson case, um, in effect, it was the execution of a police officer. And so while we would like to think that in an ideal world that, um, you know, the legal requirements will be met and all the I's dotted and T's crossed and and there will be an objective evaluation of legal requirements. But sometimes when you have facts like that, it can drive a decision uh, and, and have an effect on the ultimate decision in the case. That, that people are so shocked that you would kill a police officer in cold blood that at that point they're saying, yeah, we're not going to follow the letter of the law in this one. He doesn't get his hearing. Well, uh, you would have to say that the Kevin Johnson case and Lamar Johnson cases are absolutely different in terms of the facts. Yeah. And uh, they're going to, you know, these are all human beings, Sarah. And so, um, you know, while our system is, I think, the best in the world, it's not perfect. Yeah. Sarah, what do you what do you think of that argument there? I mean, I, I feel like what Judge Shaw is saying, that there's some truth in that. And I'm not sure how I feel about that, how that makes me feel about how things work versus how they're supposed to work. Sure. So what we've sort of talked about is the procedural process. Was it followed? Was there hearing? Was Were there facts and findings? And the answer is no. But getting to the merits, was it an unconstitutional conviction? That's where Judge Booker is headed now. And in my mind, I think there's a, a substantial evidence that it wasn't an unconstitutional conviction. And, and let me say, there's no doubt he committed the murder. I don't think anyone disputes it. But what we're talking about is the reason why a special prosecutor was appointed. McCullough, during his tenure as prosecutor, there were five cop killings. Uh, Of the five, four of them were African-American. One was Caucasian. Uh, Before McCullough uh, decided whether he wanted to pursue the death penalty, it's called a a notice of death, I think, or notice of death penalty, something like that. For the one white defendant, McCullough reached out to the defense attorney and said, can you give me some evidence that might mitigate my decision? I'd appreciate it. Uh, And uh, the white defendant's attorney said, yes, can I have more time? McCullough said, sure, no problem. And uh, the defendant's name was Trenton Forrester. Trenton Forrester attorney gave facts that would mitigate maybe why they shouldn't pursue the death penalty. That was for the one white defendant. For the four black defendants, McCullough didn't ask the defense attorneys, hey, can I have some mitigating evidence? Mm-hmm. Uh, he went straight to the filing of the de- uh, death notice. Um, more so, uh, Kevin Johnson had two trials. In both trials, uh, McCullough tried to waive his preemptory strikes. A preemptory strike means a lawyer gets to strike a juror for any reason that's not illegal. Maybe they gave me a funny look. Maybe I'm getting a cold feeling. I don't like the job they perform, whatever it is. McCullough tried to waive his preemptory strikes and said, well, judge, we'll just lob off the last few jurors in the panel. And the judge, I think it was Judge Weissman, realized what McCullough was doing and said, no, 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 because the last three preemptory strikes he would use 
were three African-American people at the back of the jury pool that he would essentially get to lob off, not include in the jury, and wouldn't have to give an explanation as to why he was trying to omit them. So uh, McCullough has a a history of he was trying, and in fact, there was an internal memo in McCullough's office that said, how do we waive preemptory strikes to exclude certain jurors we don't want? So there was an internal memo. He's trying to remove the African-American jurors. He's only seeking death uh, sentences on the African-American defendants. Uh, The white uh, Trenton Forster, before he killed the cop, he had a, a, a social media post that said, F the cops, and he asked for it to be on his grave. Mm-hmm. He was looking for a confrontation with the cops, uh, and he didn't get the death penalty. They didn't even try for they the death penalty. They didn't even try for yeah. the death penalty. So I think the reason the special prosecutors brought in is because McCullough's office, you know, tainted you know, who do they seek the death penalty for? So that's why the special prosecutor was brought in. But the prosecutor was brought in in October of 21. The special prosecutor had a year to try to put this case together, which in the lawyer world for a death case is not that long. Um, I think the special prosecutor really did expedite this. And it's a shame that um, the, the Missouri Supreme Court didn't see it that way. Missouri Supreme Court did not. The U.S. Supreme Court did not. This was uh, Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson's first ever opinion. Her dissent in this case makes it somewhat historic. Um, And yet Kevin Johnson was executed. That happened last month. It's going to be interesting to see how this wrongful conviction statute now plays out. Does shall mean shall. You're going to have to stay tuned. This is something we'll see the next time one of these comes up. We are talking today to our legal roundtable. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. We are talking today to our legal roundtable. Now, we talked last month about a lawsuit filed over the city of St. Louis's wide-ranging violations of the Missouri Sunshine Law. That suit came from uh, Elad Gross, who ran for Missouri Attorney General in the Democratic primary. Well, a week after we talked about this case, the city fought back. They filed a counterclaim against Elad Gross. They called his suit a, quote, transparent publicity stunt, an opportunity for self-promotion in the service of Gross's political ambitions. Now, the tone of this this uh, counterclaim that the city filed felt unusually personal. And Dave Rowland, you handle a lot of Missouri Sunshine Law cases. Is just the very idea of a counterclaim on a Sunshine Law case, is that unusual? And is that necessarily an example of hardball? It is unusual. It's not completely unheard of. Um, so I represented a gentleman named Aaron Mallon in a number of Sunshine Law cases. And in a separate case that the ACLU of Missouri was handling on his behalf, they faced a counterclaim for abusive process. Um, and essentially the argument in that case was this is a guy who just goes around filing all these Sunshine Law claims and um, he's just trying to be abusive of the system rather than actually trying to vindicate some legal principle. Now, that counterclaim ended up being dismissed, okay. um, but but it was brought. But let me tell you, especially as a public interest attorney, it is terrifying to face the prospect of filing a lawsuit where you absolutely believe you're correct on the law, 
Um, and all of a sudden you find yourself on the defensive. You're um, being forced to justify your efforts to enforce the law. Um, something similar happened when I sued the St. Louis Board of Election Commissioners. Um, I ended up winning the case, but I, I did not get a finding of a knowing and purposeful violation. And the court ordered me to pay the city's costs. Now, that's different from a counterclaim. Yeah. Um, it, it's not nearly as frightening as facing a, a, a counterclaim like the one that Elad is facing. But fortun- fortunately, in my case, the Missouri Supreme Court held unambiguously that in a Sunshine Law case, the government doesn't get to recover attorney's fees or costs or anything uh, against a citizen plaintiff. Yeah. Um, I am hopeful that that's going to end up helping out Elad and his situation. Um, but, you know, when we're making decisions about what lawsuits to bring, usually we don't have to worry about the possibility of facing a, a retributive lawsuit by the, the government entity that we've sued. And um, yeah, it, it really makes you think twice before pursuing your rights under the Sunshine Law. Well, what is it that makes a counterclaim so scary? How is it different than just a response to a lawsuit, which of course everybody has to file? So um, ordinarily under American law, um, both parties, they, they are only responsible for their own legal expenses. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes a, a rather unusual circumstance for you to be on the hook for your other side's legal expenses. And especially when we're talking about a lawsuit authorized by the Sunshine Law, um, again, going into it, you don't ever anticipate the possibility that the court might turn around and say, not only do you lose, you have to pay the other side's costs or attorney fees. And the counterclaim invokes that, basically. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, they, they are seeking a lot of money from Elod personally, not his client, but the attorney, uh, because they're saying that Elod stepped over the bounds of zealous advocacy of his client in filing this lawsuit. So, Sarah, for a case like this that could drag out for months, the city could be putting a number of attorneys on it. Um, Let's just say things go badly for Elod and he's on the hook. We could be talking about a substantial bill that he'd then be responsible for personally. I I mean, I I think in theory that's the case, um, but I just don't think the abuse of the abuse of uh, process case is going to go anywhere. You think in this particular case, the city doesn't have? Yeah, I don't think so. Um, Those are tough claims to bring. And frankly, when I saw the counterclaim, I was a bit surprised. I thought uh, Mayor Jones was supposed to bring supposed to be bringing in a counselor, city counselor, who was going to cool the temperatures, who was going to, quote, settle out the cases that need to be settled. Um, and all of a sudden, we see a counterclaim for a sunshine case. And I think, yeah, wow, I, when I read the lawsuit or, or counterclaim as well, I thought, well, this seems personal. Mm-hmm. Judge Shaw, how do judges assess something like this? If, if you saw a case like this, would you, uh, you know, uh, would you be skeptical of the counterclaim? Well, you know, again, I I sometimes will go to the human piece of this and the fact that Elad was uh, uh, alerting the media when he filed these lawsuits, I think, just got on the city's nerves. Yeah. And while uh, and I've been involved, I've, I've not been involved in this particular litigation, but in some other litigation involving the city, I've been involved in some of the mediations of those cases. Uh, one of the cases we're going to talk about today I'm familiar with. And uh, the city has actually been trying to resolve a lot of these cases. Uh, But again, when uh, litigation gets started, it's a gunfight. And, uh, you know, a counterclaim can sometimes be par for the course 
particularly in a circumstance like this where I think the city may have some personal bad feelings about Elad. Yeah, I want to jump back in there again um, because I am a public interest attorney and and what um, what some people may not recognize is is when we handle cases, we do them differently than ordinary attorneys would. Ordinary attorneys don't necessarily seek publicity for their cases, um, but in order to accomplish the goals of a public interest case, you want the public to know what the case is about. You want to highlight the injustice that you believe is being done. And in order to do that, you have to talk to the press. You have to seek out coverage for your cases. Sarah, you know I've done that with, for with sure. several of my cases. That's part of why we bring the cases that we do. Um, I think the difference that the city has latched onto, um, and by the way, I want to clarify, they're, they're asking for in excess of 20 $25,000 in punitive damages against Mr. Gross. Mm. Um, I think what they've latched on to is Mr. Gross did run for uh, attorney general as a Democratic nominee the last cycle. Um, they anticipate that he might do it again. And so they look at that and they're saying, well, he's got a personal stake in this. He's trying to advance himself as an individual. Um, so that gives me a little bit of hope that maybe they wouldn't do the same thing to me the next time I sue them for stopping people from feeding the homeless. Yeah. I mean, this is a very real risk for you, Dave. It you is. Know? But you know what the, how the saying goes. First they came for Elad Gross, and I was not Elad Gross, so I, you know, exactly. you, you should still be worried I am, here. I am definitely stepping up to defend Elad Gross because I know I could be next. Yeah. You know, I thought it was interesting. They had some comments in this lawsuit about, oh, it was covered, and there was this big photo of Elad Gross. And I know, as an editor of one of these stories... Um, about Elad Gross's lawsuit. The reason we chose a photo of Elad Gross was just that we had an old one on file. We're trying to figure out, okay, we have to have some piece of art for this newspaper story we're just publishing. It wasn't that he sent his photo around. Um, they also made a big stink about the fact that this had ended up in the hands of the media before it even showed up on CaseNet. Well, the same thing happened with their counterclaim. I mean, it's just kind of par for the course that reporters rely on people to send them lawsuits and legal filings. It takes a while for things to show up on CaseNet. And might I also point out um, that with a number of prosecutions, like the the prosecutors will alert the media in advance so that they can get pictures of the perp walk. Oh, for sure. Right. Yeah. So so to a, a significant extent, I think turnabout is fair play. <laughs> well, I hope nobody stops alerting us for the perp walk. We want to be there for that. Um, here I am thinking like a, a journalist again. Um, but look, here's another example of the city's hardball tactics that also happened within this last month. This takes us back to 2017 um, on the day that former police officer Jason Stockley was acquitted of murder. Protests broke out across the city. Now, that very afternoon, a 63-year-old woman spontaneously drove downtown to join the protest. She'd spent the week substitute teaching. She said she felt compelled by her faith to speak out against this injustice. Well, the cops were pushing back hard that afternoon against protesters. And what ended up becoming a piece of viral video, this woman, her name is Laura Jones, she was captured on video being apparently rammed to the ground by cops and then pepper sprayed. This thing went viral. So she ended up filing a lawsuit over that interaction. She said they used excessive force. 
And what was interesting, this case went to trial, and the city's defense didn't just rest on what happened that day, trying to defend what the cops did. They also looked at this woman's mental health. They pointed to statements she had made to a therapist about feeling suicidal, apparently when her alimony would be running out, and that she was worried about becoming poor. It felt like just some unusually personal stuff that that came from a strange place. Sarah Swadish, are you surprised the city went there in, in an excessive force case? Not at all. Not in the slightest. In fact, it's pretty common to ask for uh, a plaintiff some uh, medical records, uh, depending on the nature of damages the plaintiff is seeking. So if the plaintiff says, you know, I was embarrassed, I was humiliated, and it was really uncomfortable, you're not going to give out their medical records. Uh, there's no reason to. On the other hand, if the plaintiff says, oh, I you know, had to go to my doctor for prescriptions for Xanax because I have so much anxiety and I have what we call a medically diagnosed condition, well, if you're claiming you have a medical condition, we get your medical records. Mm-hmm. So um, I always warn my clients ahead of time, you know, what sort of damage are you seeking? Did you go to the doctor? And depending on their answer, is the objection that we would make as to whether they get the medical records. So in this case, I don't know if she was claiming a medically diagnosable condition and therefore her medical records are free game or if she was not seeking those records and the lawyer just handed them over. Yeah, so she may have opened the door to this with her claims. Correct. Do you find clients are ever surprised by this? That like, oh, hey, what you told your therapist, that's part of your medical record. This is going to be of issue here. Well, if if uh, the plaintiff was making a claim here that she suffered uh, damages based upon emotional distress, then her emotional condition is part of the record and would be uh, available to to uh, the city. Yeah. So uh, I'm sure that her lawyer would have told her that, well, you know, these things are going to be available, and 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 the city would have argued to the judge that this is not. Uh, something that should be kept out of evidence, but in fact shows that she was just motivated by money yeah, and uh, and that she didn't really suffer any what we would call traditional emotional distress over the injury itself, but because uh, she was simply motivated to get paid. Yeah, you can't use your medical record as a sword and a shield, meaning I've been distraught, I'm on medications, I'm going to a therapist, oh, woe is me. And then turn around and say, but no, you can't have the medical records. Dave? I do want to clarify for listeners that under Missouri law, generally speaking, um, information that you share with a professional counselor is privileged. So we, we have state statutes on the book that establish a privilege for communications with these professional counselors. The biggest issue, so far as I'm aware, is when a party makes their own mental state an issue in the case. That's when you sacrifice your privilege. At that point, it becomes fair game for the opposing party to seek discovery that says, okay, well, you said your mental condition was this. Now we get to find out if that's correct or not. Um, And so I don't know if the fact that she said that it was her uh, religious opinions that led her to engage in this protest or, or to do what she did was the trigger that got them access to these records. Maybe it's not. Maybe they were looking at, at the kind of damages that we were talking about. But one way or another, it seems that she put her mental state at issue in the case. Therefore, that's why the, the city appears to be in this position of saying, um, we're now going to use your communications with your counselor against you. Hmm. Yeah. And, and as we now know, that 
that evidence may very well have been the tipping point in the case because we all saw the video and we think, well, this is a pretty good claim. Right. Well, the jury found otherwise. Yeah, she did lose this case. Yes. And I remember vividly when someone first sent me this video back in 2017, you know, you see this white-haired woman being knocked to the ground. It was one of those visceral moments in these protests. And for her now to have lost, as you say, this evidence could have been something that was, was meaningful to the jury, that this did not go her way. Something else that was interesting, the city had got a hold of emails she'd sent to family members that seemed to downplay the incident, where she told them not to worry. She suggested she was all right. And she testified she just didn't want them to worry. But how this came out in these emails, the city was able to use that. Sarah, do people need to be careful about what they express, even in seemingly private conversations, if they're contemplating later filing a lawsuit? So I tell folks, never send a personal email from your work. That's number one. You have no right to privacy. Yeah, none. None, none whatsoever. Um, You know, what you put in an email to your family, your friends, I'd say most of us aren't thinking litigation. What if I sue down the road? So, you know, I would probably tell them not to worry about it. Really? Yeah. I mean, you can't spend your life planning around litigation that you may or may not have. That That's insanity. So just have your communications. And if you're paranoid, pick up the phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I sometimes wonder when I get text messages from government officials like planning skullduggery. I'm like, they should have just made this a phone call. They could have gotten away with it. But everybody hates phone calls these days. And that means prying eyes get to see it. I love it. We are talking today to our legal roundtable. That is attorney Sarah Swadish. We're also joined by former Judge Booker T. Shaw and Attorney Dave Rowland. We need to take a quick break here. Coming up next, we'll discuss a lawsuit that could decide the fate of the fabulous Fox. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Now, a lawsuit that's supposedly going to trial next month could settle a big question for St. Louis. Who owns the fabulous Fox? Two different companies, this is Fox Associates LLC and Foxland Inc., both own the land under the theater and both claim to own the theater itself. And now this is all going to get sorted out in court. Sarah Swadish, please enlighten us because this one confuses me. Sure. So uh, in 1926, Foxland, or its predecessor, entered into a lease with Fox Associate uh, for what we're going to call Parcel A. And the lease was a 99-year lease and said that Fox Associates must build a $1 million building on the land, but the $1 million building could be in conjunction with any other building that Fox Associates wanted to build. And so they entered into this 99-year lease, and so we have Parcel A, which is owned by Fox Land, and we have Parcel B that is owned by Fox Associates, and they're right next to each other. And so Fox Associates builds Fox Theater on Parcel A and Parcel B. And so now Fox Theater sits on land owned by two different people. Yeah, that's a mess. 
Well, yeah, yeah, it's a mess. I mean, tell me they're not going to tear down the fabulous Fox Theater. This cannot be a Solomonic decision where we're going to, like, split the theater in half. That doesn't work here. No, I don't think it'll – it won't be torn down. Um, I think worst-case scenario is the judge forces a partition. So uh, uh, forcing a partition means if two people own a property together, maybe an unmarried couple buys a house – they split up who gets the house. They can't decide who's done what. They go to the judge. Judge forces them to sell the house, and then they have to split the proceeds of the house. So I think worst case scenario here is Judge Moriarty says, okay, Fox Land, you still own B. Fox Associates, you still own A or vice versa. Now we're going to – judge forces them to sell the theater. This is, in my mind, worst case scenario for them because let's pretend the theater itself costs $100 million. Right. That theater is priceless. It, let's pretend it's got a value of $100 million. Who wants to pay $10 million? I, I don't. No. I got two landlords, parcel A, parcel B. They're just going to gouge me for rent. I don't want to own a building where I have to pay a $1 million or $2 million in rent. I, I, so... So maybe the building is worth a hundred million, but you're never going to find a buyer for a hundred million. So now maybe you get a buyer for ten million, twenty million. Yeah, I mean, Part- is the result that we're going to lose our finest Broadway touring productions? No, we no. We, we won't. We won't lose it. I, I think a forced sale would cut deep into the financial pockets of both Foxland and Fox Associates. They're not going to take that kind of financial hit if it comes to that one of them will sell to the other hmm. because they're not going to take $10 million because it's not worth because it's worth $100 million. Dave, what's your sense of this one? So, you know, Sarah, I looked all, all of the legal filings over on this, and I think Foxland has the better argument. They are the ones who own the property underneath the theater. And this lease that they entered into almost 100 years ago is really weird in that it specifically says, although you are buying the right and the obligation to build a building on top of it, at the end of this lease, you will give up ownership of whatever you built. And it specifies that in this agreement. It says that they agree to quit, surrender, and deliver up to the lessor possession of the premises with all improvements thereon, all of which shall be and remain the property of the lessor. And that's Foxland. Hmm. And so I think Foxland is in a very strong position here legally. Um, but as we talked about earlier on the show, sometimes bad facts make bad law. And what Fox Associates has been doing is trying to scare the city that, oh, maybe we're going to lose this phenomenal asset if you don't give us what we want. And and so I think that they're kind of making a public relations case where their legal case is not necessarily as strong. So I would suspect that ultimately the courts, if not the, the circuit court, then maybe the Court of Appeals, are going to hold that Foxland is entitled to uh, use its rights under this lease Assuming they don't come to an agreement before then. Yeah. They may end up deciding that it's better to reach, you know, an agreement where they, um, you know, work things out without having the courts tell them what has to be. So, Judge Shaw, Dave has sort of mentioned he's raised the specter of the Court of Appeals. This could end up there. There's also been, um, you know, it was in the newspaper that this is going to go to trial next month. What's your sense of how this could play out in the next couple months here? I'm... um, I, while I do agree with with Dave that um, 
that Foxland, I think, has the better legal argument at mm. this point. Uh, there are some equities at play. I mean, but it kind of goes both ways. I mean, I, I think they were paying like forty thousand dollars a year for rent and had to have been making huge profits. Yeah. Uh, with the kind of plays and shows that are that have been playing. At, and those at ticket the prices. Whew. Yeah, yeah, and, and so. But what has happened is there have been two mediations that have occurred in the case uh, with two great mediators. Uh, they have not come to terms yet on it. it. While it is set for trial, I understand that it's not likely going to trial. That will likely be continued until March. Mm. And I expect the parties will continue to negotiate with each other. Uh, I don't think there's any danger that the fox is going to be torn down or anything like that. We're gonna, The fox is going to be there. I think that reasonable minds will prevail. It's in front of Judge uh, Stelzer now uh, and not in front of Judge Moriarty now. Uh, and uh, both of them are great judges. I think uh, Judge Stelzer, I've had um, a lot of recent experience with him. He's an outstanding judge. I think the and the attorneys on, on both sides are great lawyers. Uh, and I'm just optimistic about the possibility that they'll reach some resolution. Hmm. of this. Well, I sure hope so. This this publicity campaign designed to, f- to make the populace afraid of the fox going away, this has worked. It has preyed on me. And so hopefully there will be a resolution here. Let's talk about another case. Um, this involves Attorney General Eric Schmidt. Haven't talked about him in a while. Uh, Missouri and Louisiana filed suit claiming the government worked with social media entities like Twitter and Facebook to silence conservatives. So last month, actually, while the legal roundtable was in session, Eric Schmidt got to do what he dreamed of doing and got to depose Anthony Fauci. And so after that, he put Fauci's entire deposition on Twitter within just a few days of taking it. That seemed really unusual to me. I'm so nosy. I enjoy reading depositions. It's very rare that lawyers seem to just put them out there like that. Sarah, what do you make of that move? It's showmanship. It's showmanship. Um, Most lawyers, we don't put our depositions out there because, you know, we have it's yeoman's work. We are trying to move cases along. We're trying to settle cases. We're trying to try cases. We're not necessarily looking for the public to read all the transcripts of our case. So um, it it is showmanship. Um, It it doesn't offend me, right? I believe in open courts. I don't like confidentiality agreements. I don't like protective orders. So I am more than happy to have Fauci's transcript on Twitter. So if there's disputes about what he said or what he thought, well, just go look at the transcript. Yeah. So when Eric Schmidt uh, put this out, he issued a news release, quote, in our deposition with Dr. Fauci, it became clear that when Dr. Fauci speaks, social media censors, Schmidt said. I encourage everyone to read the deposition transcript and see exactly how Dr. Fauci operates and exactly how the COVID tyranny that ruined lives and destroyed businesses was born. I went to see, like, is anyone finding any actual quotes from this deposition? Is there anything juicy here? I didn't really see anybody talking about the specifics. He's kind of like, here's this thing. And everybody's like, yeah, here's this thing. Did anyone read the thing? I don't know. Dave, did you read the thing? Well, the entire deposition was about 460 pages. I, I think I got 150 pages in. That, not and bad, Dave. So I, mean, I made an effort. Yeah. I gave it the old college try. But I, I did not see a whole lot of substance there. Now, that's not to say that it wasn't useful for the purposes of this case. It may well be. Um, But, um, you know, I I agree with Sarah that I I think that this was an act of showmanship. And I'm 
I'm familiar with such things because sometimes, uh, like I said, as a public interest attorney, you do want to kind of broadcast an admission that someone has made. I remember a case a few years back where a sheriff um, admitted to uh, to redacting documents before he gave them uh, to the person who had requested them and gave no indication that anything had been redacted. Mm. And I made sure people knew about that. And I got the transcript out there on that. Um, but again, um, it's more of a public relations move than it is a legal move. Is that something that a judge is likely to look askance at? Like, you're not serious about taking this deposition. You're just trying to humiliate this person. Do judges care about things like that, Judge Shaw? (laughs) Hmm. I I laugh, sir, because do judges have a particular opinion about our attorney general right now? Uh, Yes. (laughs) And and I agree, sir, sir, exactly right. This is political showmanship uh, to say, okay, I'm releasing these 400 plus pages of deposition, and they mean what I say it means, uh, tells you nothing. If, if it meant what it, you know, he claims that it meant, there would have been a quote yeah. and say, here's, here's what it says. So, uh, yeah. I feel like his big reveal, he said that Fauci said, I don't recall 174 times, uh, quote, including when asked about emails that he sent and interviews that he gave. Sarah, you've handled a lot of depositions. Is that unusual to see? I don't recall. It's really common, right? I I don't remember an email I sent four years ago on any particular case, on any particular matter. Put it in front of me. Did did Schmidt do his job and say, do you recall sending an email? Witnesses says, no, I don't recall. Put the email in front of him. Let him read it. Say, does this refresh your recollection? Yeah. He's not doing that. He's not really laying the groundwork for anything. He just wants a bunch of, I don't know, I don't recalls because it seems like then Fauci's, you know, evading the truth when he's not. He just doesn't remember and you haven't refreshed his recollection. Yeah. So that's for you is a starting point of kind of drilling down, but that's not necessarily what was going on here. Right, right, yeah. right. And I, I, I find it interesting that he's claiming that, you know, government's colluding with, with, with social media to censor people. Well, just this past week, Twitter, Elon Musk censored, or not censored, uh, but banned New York Times journalists, CNN journalists, Washington Post journalists. So, I mean, I, I don't really know where he's going with this. Yeah, you know, these Twitter files that, uh, you know, Elon Musk has been releasing internal Twitter documentation. This seems like this could be a real boon for this lawsuit. And yet it's hard to know whether this is even a lawsuit we should take seriously. Dave? If I could jump in quickly, I was really skeptical about this legal theory when I first heard about it about a year and a half, two years ago. Um, I do think that it is really interesting some of the information that's come to light about the extent to which government actors were pushing for certain stories or certain social media users um, to be restricted. Um, I initially thought to myself, well, the social media companies are purely private entities and as such, they get to make their own decisions. If they want to censor, they're allowed. That's what private property ownership lets you do. to the extent that they can actually prove that the government was coercing the social media companies into imposing some of these restrictions or limiting access to information, maybe there's a First Amendment issue there. But it has to be actual coercion because 
a private citizen can choose to comply with a government request, and that doesn't mean that they're being coerced. Yeah. And if you're not being coerced, it's not a First Amendment problem. It's when there's the concern that if you do not do what the government is asking you to do, you'll face repercussions. That's when I think the coercion comes in and when I think maybe you've got a viable First Amendment theory. But unless you can prove that, then I think that uh, the, the lawsuit's a load of hooey. Yeah, I mean, these uh, these Twitter files showed a whole lot of different meetings with the FBI and the FBI trying to be helpful, pointing towards things. Dave, we have just a few moments Let's here. Let's try to be helpful in quotes there, yeah, if I may. Yeah, I guess that's the question. Like, is it an FBI man showing up trying to be helpful? Or is it an FBI man saying, hey, check this out? There's a big difference from uh, your point I of view. I strongly encourage you to limit this user, wink. Like, that's that's the big question. Yeah. Is, is was it simply trying to be helpful or was it suggesting this is something you have to do. And that's what this whole case would that's, rest on. That's what we have to find out. Interesting. Well, this is one we may end up talking about again next month, as well as the fabulous Fox, as well as the wrongful conviction. I imagine there will be a verdict very soon for Lamar Johnson coming from Judge uh, David Mason. So many interesting things here, and that's why I'm so glad we have this panel here to help us sort it all through. Dave Rowland of the Missouri Freedom Center, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And Sarah Swadish of the Law Office of Sarah Swadish, thank you. Thank you. And uh, former Judge Booker T. Shaw, partner at Thompson Coburn, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. This episode was produced by Alex Hoyer, Danny Wisentowski, and Sarah Fenske, with audio engineering by Aaron Dorr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Podcast design by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.